Here, I'm going to fix this just for a moment. All right, well, this morning we're going to begin a, a new sermon series. Uh, during the summer, we looked at the, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapters 15 through 18. And this fall, we're going to look at the Beatitudes. Um, some of you might be familiar with the Beatitudes. Some of you, that might be a new term. But the Beatitudes, are there's two collections, one in the Gospel of Luke and, and one in the Gospel of Matthew. And they are sayings that Jesus offers to speak about him and about the nature of his kingdom, about the promises that he offers. And they're called the Beatitudes because of the way that they are constructed, the, the formula of their sayings, that they start with kind of the, each start with the formula, blessed is, blessed is the person. So in Matthew we hear, for example, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the list that Jesus gives goes on to include blessings on the meek, on those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, on the merciful, on the pure in heart, and on those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So hopefully over the next few weeks, we'll see that Jesus is not just offering us some timeless truths, some things that we could put on the wall or in a a book on the coffee table, but he is speaking about a way of being, a way in which his kingdom unfolds. The promises that are coming true in, in him, and the work that he's doing, and it's part of the invitation and the proclamation that he brings good news to the poor. So next week, we're going to begin looking at the Beatitudes. So I just spent a moment to tell you we're going to look at that this fall, but we're going to wait and begin next week digging into those in the Gospel of Matthew. But before we talked about you know, discipleship and this idea of our lives kind of conforming to the ways that Jesus sets before us, I thought it made sense that we could see, as we do in the Gospel of Luke, that before Jesus issues these, he calls his disciples to himself. Before we even examine our life or think about the Beatitudes or which way is blessed, it's good to start off by even hearing first that Jesus calls you. That Jesus calls you to follow. Follow me. Come to me. This life of blessing, the life of knowing the path, begins with Jesus calling to us. We can we know this, we might forget sometimes, that we know that discipleship, this idea of you know, ordering our life or religion, those things without Jesus, without starting with Jesus, they end up just being rules and practices, ideas and pressures. And I imagine that many of you in this room can relate to that, maybe even feel that somewhat now, simply left with a list of things that you're supposed to do. I don't want that to be the path for myself, and I don't want that to be the path for you either. For it always leads to places that we don't want to go. It leads to pride or to despair. And what I hope that we can see this morning as we think about the start of this is that our life and the call to follow, it always begins with Jesus. His call to you and to me, come to me, follow me, listen to me. See, our life and our faith does not start with our rituals. It's not start with our being present at church. It starts with Jesus personally calling you. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. My yoke being attached to me is easy, and my burden is light, Jesus says. So let's look at this passage from the Gospel of Luke in which Jesus calls his disciples and chooses his apostles as a way to begin a life of discipleship. It's in your order of worship. And you can follow there, Luke 6, verse 12 through 19, or you can follow in your Bible. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, 
And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you've gathered us here that you have called us to come and to gather as your people to hear your word. We pray, Lord, by your spirit that you would give us hearts to receive, that you would help us to hear and to be moved, not just to hear, but moved to to faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, I want to start our thinking about the Beatitudes. I start by, before them, when Jesus calls his disciples to himself. And so this morning I want us to think about this call that Jesus gives, and there'll be two parts to the sermon. One, that Jesus calls, and the second part is that we respond. So first we'll look at Jesus' call to follow him, and then consider our response to this call. So we start by Jesus calling. Jesus calls men, women, children to come to him to follow. And our passage opens with Jesus in the mountain, alone, praying. And after spending time in prayer, Jesus comes out of his solitude to act. And his action is to call his disciples to himself, to choose 12 to serve as apostles. And what I want us to see, maybe just real simply here, is that discipleship starts with the call of Jesus. It rests upon his initiative. We can consider for a moment the word disciple. That word, it means one who trusts in the guidance of another. To ask or seek another to give you guidance for how to live or to understand. We might think about it in a teacher-pupil, teacher-student relationship where the main initiative, often when we think about it, the main initiative rests with the follower, rests with the student seeking out this helpful direction. We can think about one who sets off on a quest to find a master or a guru. We can think about seeking out a specific coach or a trainer to help your physical being. You can register at a university to study with a particular professor. Or even in other ways, we can seek out an author, his or her books or articles that we want to give ourselves to. And these examples are helpful thinking about kind of ordering our life or trying to follow the teachings of another person. But in these examples, we would normally think the relationship of the student to master is initiated by the student, the one seeking out, this is the one I want to follow, to listen to. But in Christian discipleship, In the ministry of Jesus, throughout the scriptures, we see something different, that the initiative rests with God, that God calls to you, to me, God calls to his people to come and to follow. In our passage and elsewhere, we see Jesus as the one who issues the call. When Jesus gathers his disciples for the Last Supper, he says to them, you have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. And the Apostle Paul, in in numerous places, the way he describes the Christian community, the way he describes the church that you are those who have been called by Jesus Christ. You have been called. 
We are called into discipleship, this relationship with Jesus, and it begins with him. Him seeing you, personally calling you to follow, to listen to me, come to me. And so this call starts with Jesus, it starts with his initiative. We also see in our passage that this call is is broad. It's not just to a select few, not just to one slice of the population, but it is broad. Do we notice that Jesus comes out of the mountains to call his disciples to choose the twelve? But our passage also speaks about those who gather near to him. Those who gather in response it includes the sick. It includes those struggling with diseases. It includes those who have been declared religiously unclean. And from the beginning of his preaching, Jesus announces good news that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that that good news is for the poor or for those who need to be lifted up. His message is that the kingdom is for what we might say ordinary people. There's a warmth and a welcome to the crowds that even for those who find themselves outside, those who have been moved aside by those who are strong or the religious insiders, those who are stuck in shame or forgotten, Jesus seems especially interested in them hearing his call. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy burdened. Allow the little children, the little ones to come to me. Do not forbid them. Those that are well have no need of a physician, but those that are sick, Jesus says. I have come for the sick and the sinner. The Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. And in these words and along with his actions of welcome, we can see why Jesus came to be known as the friend of sinners, the friend to social outcasts. And this call of the first disciples, the first apostles, we get a window, a small window into this broad nature of Jesus' gathering of people. Even in the twelve, there's a variety of names, a variety of families, a variety of vocations. And they are called to follow Jesus. And beyond these twelve, we see that the gathering of those who came to him from around the different areas, geographic areas, but they come needing to be healed. They come troubled seeking help from Jesus. As we see throughout the Gospels, it tends to be these individuals that the religious leaders were quick to dismiss, quick to distinguish that they were not in the inside of those who were doing what God asked, but they were on the outside. In Jesus' call, it stresses that something has changed. The things are reversing, turning upside down, that in Jesus, good news has arrived for those who long for it. Jesus initiates our discipleship by calling to us. And Jesus' call is broad, not just for the strong or those who would be deemed as acceptable, but it is broad. One thing that comes to mind as we think about this call that Jesus gives to those who were broken or poor or aware of their need is in Ephesians 5, Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing about marriage. And he talks about the Christian marriage of two becoming one. And he talks about the relationship between a husband and wife. And in order to help us understand human marriage, he points us to Christ's love for the church. Now, I imagine as we gather here that we have a variety of different kind of experiences or emotions regarding marriage. It brings forth a sense of maybe blessing and good things, but also hurt and longing. 
But no matter our experience, we're invited in this moment to think, as we think of marriage, to see Christ's love for us, Christ's love for his people. And we can see part of the call that Jesus brings. When Paul writes about Christ's love for the church, he says, Christ loved the church. He loved his people. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her so that he might present the church to himself, listen, in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be presented as holy and blameless. Do you hear that description of Jesus' love for those he calls? The church is not loved or called or selected because she is already without splendor, already in splendor. The church is not called because she's already without wrinkle or without blemish. You see, Jesus gives himself for us, for his people, that he might, through his sacrifice, make us blameless, make us with splendor, make us without spot or wrinkle. That is the call of Christ, the broadness of it, that we who are wrinkled and filled with spots, those who long to be different, Jesus says, I have come to you, not because of your beauty, but to make you beautiful in my grace. See, that's why is it important that we talk about Jesus' call, especially before we think about examining our life and wanting to order our lives anew. We have to start with Jesus' call and his work towards us. Why is that? Because as I mentioned in the beginning, that religion that discipleship without Jesus at the center of it, without his gracious movement towards us, it simply becomes what you and I do or what we don't do. It becomes a list of pressure, a list of different things we're supposed to take care of. None of us want that experience. None of us want that. That is not good news for us. The good news rests in the divine initiative, God moving towards you and me. That God seeing us full of our wrinkles and our spots, our blemishes, but moving towards us and giving himself to make us new. You see, part of thinking about discipleship is remembering the order of the gospel. That in Christ and in his call, grace always precedes the law. That, grace, that he comes to us in grace, and then once we've been united to him, he invites us to walk in new ways. Laws that will order us and bring us life. That in the gospel of Christ, the covenant of him moving towards us always precedes obedience. That's how God is with his people. He moves towards us in grace. He unites himself to us in his grace. Then in that union, invites us to walk in new ways. New ways of being human. New ways of reflecting him. In the musical Jesus Christ Superstar, I have to admit I'm not super familiar with that, but I do know a couple parts of it. But in the Last Supper scene, one of the things the apostles sing together is the line, I always hoped he'd make me an apostle, knew that I could make it if I tried. Always hoped he'd make me an apostle, knew that I could make it if I tried. Well, it might make for a good song, I don't don't know, I'm not very good at judging that, but that is not the posture that we see in the Gospels of Christ. Jesus moves to his disciples, his apostles, not because of their goodness or their preparation, because of his grace for them. The author Peter Kraft says this well. He asks, what is the essence of Christianity? When Christianity was proclaimed throughout the world, the proclamation was not, love your enemies. But the proclamation was, Christ is risen. 
Christ is risen. The gospel is not a new ideal, but a new event. That God became man, died, and rose for our salvation. Therefore, the gospel proclamation is not a list of what you and I are to do, not what we've done, but the gospel proclamation is Jesus. The essence of Christianity is not Christianity, human activity. The essence of Christianity is Christ. And we always have to start there when we think about our lives and examine our lives. Jesus has called you and me. He's called us personally to come and follow, and we are to respond. So the first part of us thinking today is about Jesus' call. I want us to take the rest of our time to think about our response. And there's a number of ways that we could talk about that, but the Scriptures, suggest, I suggest, offer the word repentance. How do we respond? We respond with repentance. Now that is a, it could be a heavy word for you, a heavy word, things about drudgery or about all the things I've done wrong. That's not how the Scripture uses it. The Scripture uses repentance with the idea of turning away from something, of, of denying, of turning away, but also of turning towards something. And I want us to think about that in our response, that when Jesus calls us that we are called to repent, we are called to turn away from our own desires or turn away from other voices, and we are to turn to Christ as our hope, our trust. Repentance is turning away. You see, Jesus' call, we know this, Jesus' call comes in the midst of many other voices, many other calls. This past week, for, for many families here in our neighborhood, school began again. The schoolyards and the different places that were often so quiet in the summer became full of chaos and busyness of students coming back. And I want us to picture for a moment this kind of a scene of a recess or a time after school. Students gathered, kicking around soccer balls together. If you could picture such a thing, then maybe you can notice that there would be an adult with a whistle around his neck walking out onto that field in the midst of the kids. We can't hear what he's saying, but we notice that he calls the kids together, and slowly but surely, the kids gather around, and the adult selects 11 of them and places them off to the side. And asks, what's this person doing? What's happening? Whether you're a soccer fan or not, whether you know much about soccer or not, even if we can't hear what's happening, even if we don't know the person or the kids, we can guess, we can assume that he selects 11 kids and puts them off to the side in the midst of a field full of soccer balls, that he's setting up a team. He's setting up a group to play together. And that image points to us what's happening in some ways with Jesus and the disciples and the apostles, and he selects the 12. Sadly, they didn't have soccer back then, as far as I know. But in any case, what was going on is much more important than soccer or recreation. But all those gathered around Jesus, all those who liked him and didn't like him, those in between, they had a long memory. The context of where they were that day, they knew that God had called Israel called Israel as 12 tribes, declared those 12 tribes his special possession, and also said that by God's covenant, he would work in the 12 tribes to bless the world, that through these 12, God would work in the world to bring renewal. The people, whatever they thought of Jesus, they remembered Jacob, who was given the name Israel, and his 12 sons. And now Jesus has come, as it were, out onto the field, into the conversation where all sorts of people are gathered, 
And there's all sorts of voices going on and talking about what does it mean to be part of God's people? How should God's people live? How does, what does it mean to walk in the right direction? Some were offering new rules to obey. Some were calling for a violent revolution against the Romans. Some were saying we should support the king presently. Some were proposing withdrawing completely to the desert, having our own space. There are many who are seeking to make sense of life. Many different voices. And in that crowd, Jesus selects 12 and says, these are my apostles. And even without a word of explanation, everyone there would know what he's doing. He was forming a new Israel. He was forming a people, saying that the path of living in the light of God, the path in which we walk to life, is in me. And I'm calling a people to experience that call and to share it with others. We might not be in a context where people are asking what's the right way to respond to God or the right way to walk in the path of God. But there are all sorts of calls and voices around us, maybe asking what's the good life? How can I be happy? How can I be secure? How can I be successful or respected? And in the midst of those questions, there are all sorts of voices telling us, well, you need to gather a lot of money. Or you need to find ways to have a luxurious life You need to find a way to push off or limit the responsibilities that are put upon you. You need to foster respect or honor. You need to do all these certain things that good people do. Or you can use these substances to help numb what's going on or help you cope. Or you can just follow your heart and seek what you desire. There are all sorts of voices offering us different paths. And in the midst of that, Jesus walks out and invites us to be part of the people that he's forming. Saying, life begins with my call. And that is a life that you should share with others. See, repentance means turning away from those other voices, those other calls, and turning our attention to Jesus, saying that life starts with his words and his ways. Hearing and listening to his voice, it's more than just an emotional response. It's more than just mere interest. It's more than just conforming to the expectations of those around us. What I would rather think for us to think about this morning is it's an expression of deep loyalty, of a union or identification with Jesus. That's one of the reasons that marriage is used in the scriptures to help us think about our relationship with God. The idea of two becoming one, of wife, a husband and wife joining together as one. Martin Luther wrote a good amount about this image of marriage for our, our Christian life. He called it the great exchange. That in Christ, his call and our faith, we come together as one. And like in marriage, Christ gives us everything that's his, his righteousness, his grace, his blessing. And in turn, we give everything to Christ that belongs to us, our brokenness, our shame, our gifts. When we turn away from other loves, we turn away from other offers, in faith we turn to Christ. This is our new identity. And again, I ask, why does this matter? It matters because if you're like me in our hearts, we always want to change the order of things. That God will be interested in me if I respond the right way. If I do the right things, then God will be pleased with me. If I do the right things, or if I obey and keep the right lists, then my union with Christ will be secure. 
The gospel tells us that that's not the order of how things work. That's the order maybe of human hearts that are broken in this world, but the order of the gospel is that God has moved towards us, that in Christ he's moved towards us, and we've been united to him, two and becoming one. And in that secure union, in that secure uniting by God's grace, that we can now live a new identity as one who belongs to God, responding to his call. So where does this call find you this morning? Maybe for some of you, it's the first time hearing it and considering it, that Christianity is not just a religion, but that Christ personally is calling you to walk with him, to turn away from other hopes and other loves and other voices, to walk with him. Maybe for many of you, that's something that you know and believe, but if you're like me, we need to be reminded in the midst of struggles, in the midst of circumstances, in the midst of busyness, that we need to be reminded, encouraged, that Christ has called you. Follow me. Come to me. Live out the identity as one who belongs to me. I imagine this is the experience in other places of our life. On a daily basis, we, have to, we should or sometimes we have to remind ourselves of our relational identities. I'm a spouse. I'm a parent, or I am a brother, I'm a child. I am a roommate, I am a neighbor. I am a fellow Christian with those in my church. We might, we know that. If you're like me, that we have to be reminded and called again, this is your identity. What would it look like to live it out? In the midst of hurt and brokenness, what would it mean to start anew? In the same way Christ has called us to and united us to him when we respond in faith. No matter how long we've been a Christian, how long we've heard that call, each day we're asked to remember again, this is who we are. Am I living in light of God's gracious call and gracious union? Or am I living in light of something else? Wherever we are today, let us repent again and turn away from other calls, other voices, and let us turn to Christ, the one who has given himself for us to, to take away our wrinkles and our spots and our blemishes, that we might be beautiful and radiant before him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for the call in our life. I thank you that by your word you awaken us, by your word you move us to yourself. Thank you for your grace that you have acted for us, not because of our goodness, but because of your great love for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.